Hello there. My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. The first sizeable saltwater fish I ever caught was a blue shark while on holiday with my parents at Lou in Cornwall back in the 1960s. It's very likely that the vast majority of blues caught at that time were taken by inquisitive first-time fishing holiday anglers and brought in for weighing on the key, no doubt, to generate more novice holiday bookings for the following week. That's how it was back then, and consequently, the blue shark not only suffered as a species by quickly slipping into decline, but also as a real angling target through its association with ultra-heavy gear and the holiday trade, and as a result, it slowly but surely slipped off the genuine angling radar, where it languished for many years until good numbers of them were discovered, and more to the point, once again targeted off Milford Haven in South Wales. Andrew Alsop, who I interviewed for audio angling a couple of years ago in 2011, is the man who can shoulder the credit for that. He can also shoulder the credit for upgrading the status of the blue shark too, and for finding them in both huge numbers and individually of large size. And not only blues. For having immersed himself into all things shark related, and having the right boat and attitude for the task at hand, Andrew has gone on to enhance his credentials by adding poor beagle sharks, blues over national record size, and the biggest ever UK haul of blue sharks ever taken in a single day. This obviously has inspired a lot of anglers and brought shark fishing back into the frame as a serious pursuit once again, one of those devotees being Kent angler Andy Griffith, who I'm linking up here with now. So why this confessed and growing personal obsession with catching sharks? I think my obsession with sharking began really uh, a progression from traditional, what I call traditional fishing, primarily along the Kent coast out of boats where I get typically bass, cod, thornback rays, those sort of things. And I felt, in my opinion, my skills were sort of um, going a little bit further. I wanted to push the limits and I felt that an attempt to catch the larger species in the UK would be an obvious choice. And clearly, along with many people in the UK, a passion for sharks, I think sort of having watched Jaws, the film, just the interest in sharks, knowing that they are in their environment, top of the food chain, they are prime predators, and just sort of the the idea of going up against something that is a pretty fearsome creature in its own environment. And going on from there, the earliest attempts I made with the sharking were in Lou, unsuccessfully across two seasons, and it, you know, it was the thrill of going down there, the possibilities. We all know that uh, many, many years ago, Lou was the sort of the mecca of um, shark angling in the UK. And I felt that was a good place to start. So unsuccessful down there, didn't sort of drop my hopes, investigated possible alternative locations. And um, watching TV one day, I saw Milford Haven pop up with Andrew Alsop, who at that stage was sort of being described as the the shark skipper of the UK. And so I made contact with him. I was led to believe also that it was very difficult to get onto his boat. He was um, very, very much booked well in advance, but felt that hopefully a a decent conversation over the phone, um, explanation of what I was really wishing to achieve, and it was a real goal of mine. And if there was an opportunity to jump aboard, that's where I would head. And that led me to um, venturing to Milford Haven and meeting Andrew Alsop. Now, I know from both his outstanding record and through speaking to him during that podcast interview that Andrew Allsop is without doubt the most accomplished and successful shark skipper of the modern era. 
I could even possibly be tempted into saying of all time. So what is it about him and Milford Haven that you find so compelling? I think actually, because I, tra I travel six hours in the car from my home in Canterbury to Milford Haven, and I've shared this sort of with other people, and they do say that part of the whole sharking experience is almost the build-up to it. It's just that uncertainty as to what you might get that day. So my journey, it starts my mind worrying about what's laying out there. So it's it's good fishing there generally. It holds a lot of bait fish, so it's obvious that predators will be there. There's a huge gannet colony which supports the fact that there are big shoals of mackerel and herring going through there at any point in time. So that, coupled with the reputation of Andrew being the most successful UK shark skipper, is why that sort of location has sort of led me to going up there regularly. His knowledge is extensive, clearly. He's got his own personal achievements. I think he's had a £170 blue himself. And as his sort of scope for catching larger sharks has evolved, he's gone for better boats, more efficient, giving us more speed at sea, getting to different grounds. It's just his knowledge is, well, the best in the business, really. And anybody listening will know that the catch and release record of a blue of £222 by Wayne Little is a Welsh record. And sadly that the UK body don't really recognise it because it's not killed. But I think in actual fact, Andrew, through the Welsh sort of beliefs of catch and release, is pushing the way forward as it should be. We should sort of catch these creatures and put them back safely and hopefully they'll be there for a further period in the future. I actually interviewed British Record Fish Committee Chairman Mike Healing several weeks ago and put that point to him that anglers are no longer willing and with some species now legally protected no longer able to kill any shark they choose just to claim a record and that it was about time the BRFC ran a point system either as well as or instead of only considering fish that are killed and weighed on land for record status. What he did say was that the committee now runs a notable fish list for specimens that aren't killed and more certainly that £222 blue shark you mentioned, which also beats the British record, could well have gone into that list instead. But still it seems anglers aren't interested. My suggestion was to multiply the length by the girth at the widest point. Obviously, fatter fish which would have weighed heavier would also score more points, so there is a correlation. Weight is only one way of expressing the size of a fish. That suggestion didn't exactly fall on deaf ears. Mike himself would love to see change, but unfortunately his is only one voice within a group. However, they ultimately choose to do things is up to them, so long as the fish are not manhandled and in the end get to swim away. I made um, a communication to one of the fishing magazines and said, can we not, with the, the nature of this Mako, as a big profile in shark angling, can we not use this as a real lever to change the attitudes of catch and release, and, you know, it virtually fell on deaf ears, which is sad. Andrew, again, he's got great knowledge of how to handle sharks. People have often joked that the safest sharks in this country are actually on his deck. He handles them with great care. He has the knowledge through the Shark Association as well. He's worked with them closely, I think, as far as maximum times of being out of the sea, how to disgorge safely and effectively. And we use a deck hose on the boat, so we pass high-pressure water through the shark's mouth, so it's got constant water flow across its gills, which is led to believe to keep it in tip-top shape. Incidentally, Andrew doesn't believe in tagging. A lot of skippers do believe in that. 
Andrew's thoughts, and I personally totally agree with them, are such that if tags fall into the wrong hands, it is very easy for commercial longliners and um, boats that wish to actually fish for sharks for sadly finning will actually use that knowledge as far as migratory routes. So we don't actually tag our sharks. That's obviously open for debate. Some people will disagree with that. Some people would fully support it, but we don't tag them. We carefully measure them. The measurements are length and girth. There are different tables for blue and poor beagle. And they, um, with a formula, which I believe has been created by scientists, where they have actually had dead sharks to measure and sort of formulate these figures, we are fairly, well, we're very accurate with our, our measurements and weight. And that clearly promotes the fact that these sharks can be caught. They can be very carefully handled. You can have your glory photograph and then you can return them to the environment where they belong. That supports uh, an ongoing sport for many generations to come. Weight estimation formula are often dismissed as being too inaccurate. But, if everyone uses the same one, then really, that shouldn't be an issue, as it's going to be the same for everyone. That's right, yeah, exactly. And in the right hands, those measurements are correct and well presented. Obviously, in silly hands, with silly skippers on dream weights, they will say that a fish weighs something completely different. But proper anglers know proper skippers and proper um, anglers themselves, so... Are you thinking of anyone in particular with that remark? <laughs> I could name a few. It's sad, because at the end of the day, I don't know, I don't play golf, but it would be like saying you got a par and you were sort of two over it. So you're only cheating yourself. So I've, I think I said this to you before, Phil, I'd have loved my Mako to be 200 plus. It was 194.04 and that's where it stands and I'm delighted to have done it. Well, after 40 odd years fishing out from balls, a Mako of any size would do for me, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of people with poor beagles, they're often nicknamed the small ones as rugby ball, and a lot of anglers just want to catch a rugby ball, just to say they've had the species. So, um, yeah, a poor beagle, they're formidable. Now, as I understand it, Andrew regularly provides opportunities for both blue and poor beagle sharks during the same trip. So obviously, there is some degree of overlap. But equally, if you do want the best shot at either species, presumably you need to specialise. Yeah, that's right. I think initially season comes into play. June, July and October primarily would be your targeting of poor beagle. Poor beagle can turn up at any time throughout the year. They seem to prefer colder water. So we will target poor beagles in the months of June and July and October as the sort of the highlight months. Blues will then tend to fall in between. In the summer months you can still get both. But um, you can catch both in the same area. You would tend to find along certain coastlines poor beagles more inshore. And then that being said, you can then go very much off the um, coast and go to much deeper marks with features where you've got potentially drop off of 300 odd foot and you can fish those effectively. And that's where you can actually encounter bigger poor beagles. So fishing methods are the same. The... Deep baits can bring a poor beagle as much as the bait nearest the boat. I mean, I've had them on both and good size on both. So there doesn't seem to be a depth issue. Poor beagles will stalk around um, wrecks as well. Many anglers will have had pollock bitten clean off. Lots have had congas even bitten in half, and that will be poor beagle attacks. So when we're fishing for poor beagles in those early months, we tend to bait fish along the bottom and bring up whiting and haddock and things like that. So you get in a lot of vibration 
of caught fish in the sea and you're bringing those to the boat and that can really turn the poor beagles on. They are finicky to catch. I think a lot of people might think that um, both blue and poor beagles will just come and latch themselves onto a hook with a good bait on that. That isn't the case. Poor beagles are a mackerel shark. They're very much a hunter. And sometimes if you've got a pretty static bait, if you've got a calm sea, they will not take a bait, even if you see them whizzing around the boat. You tend to have a bit more luck with blues. They will come in more scavenging. They fight completely differently. Anybody, again, who's called a poor beagle will probably acknowledge that's probably the hardest fighting fish you'll get in the UK. They really do run away from you. They will turn and come straight back to you. They'll dive, they'll go under the boat. I've been literally walked around the boat three times with a big poor beagle before, and it, it is a case of holding onto the boat and holding onto the rod and reel and hoping that you've still got that thing attached. Blue sharks tend to be slower in their runs and quicker to the boat, so they are very much different, but they are both very enjoyable to catch. All of that said, of the various shark species taken on rod and line in British waters, the ultimate prize is still widely acknowledged as being the mako. Threshers reputedly fight far harder, and are not exactly common fish themselves either. But the mako is still the elusive one, with not many more than around 40 ever taken on rod and line here in the UK, with the last one, prior to 2013, having been caught by David Turner aboard Robin Vinicom's boat Huntress out from Falmouth in 1971, both of whom have also recorded interviews for audio angling. Then, several weeks ago, all that changed. It was highly likely that makos were still in the UK. It was highly likely they were going to be in grounds that held a lot of bait fish seasonally. And it was no surprise in actual fact when um, two or three weeks before when we went out, I think I had the second day of the, the new shark season in Andrew's new boat. Now the new boat, for anybody that knows the boat, is twin outboard engines, it's twin hull it's a very, very specialist boat. It's been developed for Andrew shark fishing across many years. Any little bits and pieces that haven't been quite right on other boats have been put into this, but in a positive way. So it's been developed for, so say, UK game fishing. Now, the speed of the boat allows us to get to the fishing grounds much quicker, probably saves us two or three hours a day. Now, that two or three hours a day is clearly more rubby-dubby in the water with more opportunity for sharks to come in on that. Andrew has a bait supplier supplying chum in a frozen block form, so we don't have to go and get a load of chum. The two weeks before, I'd had that £235 poor beagle, and joking with Andrew, as I returned uh, several weeks later, I said, I don't know what we're going to try and do to beat that, and it was a little bit of a joke. And on that day, hand on heart, I said, wouldn't it be fun if we got a mako? And I'd said that to friends and family on leaving for that trip. And I did actually say to my father that I felt that in my lifetime, I would almost guarantee that Andrew would have a Mako on his deck. And clearly I was always going to be more excited if it involved me, whether it was to spectate on that lucky day or to be involved. And clearly I was involved and managed to um, hook and land it. Now that day we set out um, in a different method Andrew had had some success with poor beagles on a moving bait, so we were actually going to troll bait. So hooked up fresh mackerel baits and trolled at slow speed. And we we hadn't had any success. We trolled for about three hours, um, which meant 
with the tide and the drift, we effectively were going to end up in that three-hour period laying down a chum trail of about 15 miles. So in general terms, that would probably be about three times the, the normal day's chum trail. So effectively, we'd got the benefit of three days chum trail to fish that day, if that makes sense. And we trolled along. We had a, a, a blue, and that was good fun because that was the first one I'd ever caught on a troll bait. And then we decided we would set down in the normal way and drift and fish four floats in the normal method, deep to shallow from the furthest point back to the boat. We saw a lot of big dolphins that day, and there was far more bird activity, and it it genuinely felt a different day. There seemed to be more activity. We were fishing a particular mark that had interested Andrew. He'd looked at charts. It was a deep position with a good drop-off, and we felt, why not try something different across this drop-off? I had eight other blue sharks, biggest of 120, and at that point in the season, the 120 was the biggest blue of the season, so I was pretty chuffed with that. Probably within about 40 minutes, then the deepest bait went, and um, that went off at a fair rate of knots, and it was shaking, and you could feel the sort of head nodding, and I knew almost immediately it was a poor beagle, and so pretty excited about that, because to get two in the same day was going to be great fun. So I had... A fair battle with that. That was about 30 minutes to get that to the boat. Again, I ended up walking around the boat with that one. That came in, I think we measured that at 119 pounds. So I was doing pretty well. So I'd had um, the 10 sharks, yeah, nine blues, one poor beagle, 120 and 119, biggest of both. And we were fishing away. And all of a sudden, the nearest rod to the boat, which only sits at times, I don't know, about 10 metres off the back of the boat, that float went down, that reel screamed a higher pitch than any of us had heard. I picked the rod up, engaged the strike as a lever drag reel, and the next thing we saw was this Mako, bright white belly, beautiful sort of titanium side and blue, just go airborne. It came out, anybody that watched any sort of um, films where a submarine launches a Polaris missile, it was a similar sort of effect to that. It went vertical, 15, 20 foot in the air, cartwheeled to the left twice and went back in the water like a depth charge had gone off and Andrew just shouted Mako, literally, and it was just electrifying. And it's the first fish ever that has given me sort of such an adrenaline hit, my legs shook. I knew exactly what this was, that there was no doubt what it was. And I knew that this could be a history-making fish. And Andrew came alongside me and he said, right, mate, he said, you know what to do. Let's just go. Let's just fish like we normally do. But you've got to get this on board. We've got to get this. This is the first Welsh Mako. Uh, at that time, we weren't quite sure on dates. It obviously transpired that it was the first Mako in the UK since 71. So a significant catch in angling terms. And um, we set about it started. Well, Andrew started the boat immediately. All the other lines were pulled in, and the most sort of um, exciting part of one of the lines coming in was uh, David Morris pulled in a bait which went across beneath my line as the, my fish was sort of further away, and a much bigger mako went whizzing across the back of the boat, and we all agreed it was. I know water can magnify, but it was significantly bigger. We reckon it was twice as big. So it was pretty exciting that we knew there was another one there. I mean, in actual fact, we have joked we were quite pleased that I had the smaller of the two because I think we would probably been in for a three or four hour battle with the bigger one and could possibly have lost that one, whereas the fish I had was, um, you know, a good weight 
and uh, there was always a little bit more chance that if uh, Lady Luck was with us that day, it would be successfully boated, and it was. It took line in the normal way. It only jumped that initial jump, and I was pleased because a lot of makers are lost when they jump for obvious reasons. They can actually crash back onto the line and just cut through it. So we were very careful with the drag setting. Andrew came alongside me, checked that while I was winding. So we stripped a little bit of line off, so we were sort of shy on strike drag, so that there was just a little bit more flexibility there. The boat had to be moved around a fair bit. Um, we got the the shark to the side of the boat probably within about 10 to 15 minutes, and that's where we took video footage. Uh, well, we took video footage in advance of that, but we, we were absolutely able to assure anybody if that fish had come off at that time, we'd got video footage of all the significant um, features of the Mako to dismiss any, oh, was it a poor beagle? The difference on the Mako and the poor beagle, the fin on the poor beagle has a white flag. Um, on the Mako, it doesn't. The facial features of the Mako are significantly different as well. So we'd got that alongside. The leader had been touched. We'd recorded um, on the video that we'd sort of technically caught the fish and that it was the first Welsh Mako that leader was in hand. And it was almost as though the Mako didn't really want to come on board at that point and just shot off. And when the video footage is released officially, that will be part of the video that will be quite exciting for viewers because you will see the speed of that uh, Mako going off and the bubble trail that comes off of the float as it goes back in the, in the sea. I think it was probably a further 30 minutes of um, pretty tense fighting. I wouldn't say I enjoyed the fight, <laughs> if I'm honest. It was a very tense one. Andrew kept saying, if you get this on board, you're going to make history. So it was a, a real pressure battle. And, it, you know, I really just had to function. At one point, I sort of took a bit of a breather, and Andrew's, come on, wind, wind, wind. You've got to get this in. So... It was um, a very much a team effort, and um, I've learned all my sharking skills from Andrew. I've always sort of seen him as a coach in many respects when I'm hooked into something, and um, with his sort of assistance, we managed to get it to the side of the boat. The other crew members enabled the snare to be made ready, and um, the snare, for anybody that's less familiar, is effectively like a choke chain dog lead. It's a cable, and once you put that over the fish in a certain position, typically over the head and over one pectoral fin, you can pull it firmly tight. It doesn't harm the shark, but it does allow you to have pressure on the fish in a different position to the hook position. So should that hook fail or come out, you have still got a good grip on the fish. And then it took three of us to get it on the deck. And at that point, we um, all shouted, well done to ourselves, and we were very excited for um, getting the beast of a mako on board we then went on to measure it i think it, off the top of my head it was 88 uh, i think 88 inches by 44 i think i can't remember it worked out at 19404 pounds and it was an amazing feat i mean i i, I still can't believe it happened i think the the best image that will stay with me other than releasing the shark was it going airborne? And I think Andrew would agree. Seeing that shark go airborne was um, probably the highlight of my fishing career. And, of course, that concluded the fishing for the day. We actually chose to go in because we were on such a high. It concluded what has been recorded as a Grand Slam. So I had a Blue Shark of 120, Paul Beagle of 119, and Mako of 194. It's been put to me that that has never been achieved by any one angler in any one day worldwide. So that's what has been suggested by various journalists to me. So 
proud of that and proud of our team achievement because um, it, it is a team event on the day. I couldn't have done it on my own and um, I owe a lot to Andrew in assisting me getting that personal goal. Taking that one stage further, I believe the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain have also been in touch with some awards to mark the occasion too. That's right. I've actually received in the post today a letter from the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain and it says, Dear Andrew, the committee are pleased to inform you that you have been awarded the following trophies, the Mitchell Hedges, the Norman Lorraine and the September Trophy. So yeah, I'm thrilled to bits with that. That clearly recognises those achievements and um, yeah, I'm delighted. And again, I've made reference to that. I see that as a joint trophy win for both Andrew and myself. This fish obviously has generated a huge level of interest, not only in the angling press, but also the wider media, including the TV channels, and has probably even been noted at a scientific level too. Yes, that's right. The local telly where I live, they reported it that a local angler caught the fastest shark in the world. Anybody that knows any detail about the Mako, it is the only shark that's described as a game fish. It is actually the fastest shark in the world. I think they have been recorded at 46 miles an hour. And I think their aerobatics are very well documented and are known to any anglers. The level of the interest has then moved to local papers and also Sea Angling magazine, Sea Angler. We did an exclusive feature with them, which ended up being a cover shot, which I was really pleased about. And Total Sea Fishing did a, a big feature as well. Those articles led to additional interest in the form of Sky. I fished recently, filming for tight lines on Sky. That was good fun, and I, I actually managed to get my personal best blue shark that day. So that was great fun to have that filmed, and that was £167 blue, so I was, I was really excited about that. Sky wanted the video footage of the Mako capture for free. I declined that. Um, Andrew and I are working with Martin Bowler, and again, anybody uh, that's interested in angling will know that he... He's a, a high-class angler. He's um, also author of many books, and he also produces fishing DVDs. So he's a great friend of Andrew, and he said he would pro-edit the footage that we had into a format that can be enjoyed by fellow shark anglers in the future. I didn't feel that at that stage, and Andrew was in agreement, we wanted it going out on Sky. We wanted to sort of take our time on it and make sure it's right. And in actual fact... At the time of this recording, I haven't seen the edited version, but I'm looking forward to seeing that and then, then agreeing with Andrew in how we actually release that in the public domain. It does actually show good fighting footage of the shark on the top of the water. It shows it coming to the side of the boat, as I've previously mentioned, with it going off at high speed with a sort of bubble trail going off. And it shows footage of us snaring at the side of the boat. It shows it on deck being measured and it, it also records it being put back safely to fight another day. So, yeah, it, it has generated a lot of interest, and I suppose in sharking terms, it's sort of up my profile. Um, I'm being called Mr. Mako or the shark catcher sort of throughout the UK, which I think is quite funny. I think my, my boys find it funnier than I do. So what do you put your successes personally down to? Obviously, I'm not thinking here of the Mako, which even you must agree was a bonus. But your catch rate and size successes with the poor eagles and blues is another matter, and far from a coincidence. Yes, that is right. I think it's the amount of time I put in. When I charter Andrew's boat, I take the entire boat. So, obviously, if we're fishing four rods, I've got a 100% opportunity that day for those captures. 
if I was fishing with three other friends, clearly I've got a 25% hit rate. So when people have said, oh, Andy Griffith's lucky, he is quick to um, correct them and say that I'm actually described as his most loyal customer. I put the hours in. I'm willing to put my wallet out where it needs to be and have the whole boat to myself. And that's the way I like to do it. And that does maximise my opportunities. It's time at sea. If you're thinking about shark fishing in your living room at home, there is no opportunity. If you're at sea, there is always that chance. And I've fished with Andrew since 2007. It took me four years to actually catch a poor beagle shark. I'd lost loads, but I to actually boat one. And so if you quantify my hours at sea, my journey time and my financial investment, it almost comes down to hard work put in, a bit of luck on the day with that maker going through. Yeah, I think I uh, have been rewarded for my input, put it that way. But equally, I am prepared to um, go out there and try new things. When I caught that £235 poor beagle, Andrew quite specifically said in the morning, he can take me and catch blue sharks, or we can go to a completely different location, gamble everything, I might catch nothing, or I could get a big poor beagle. And that is a classic result of me being willing to gamble and having the top skipper putting you in the right place and trying to get you your goal fish. So it is a case of if you're prepared to gamble, you can actually come up with results. We use a significant amount of rubby dubby. We use top bait. Again, it all costs a lot of money. If you're paying a lot of money for a trip, you need to have the top bait, you need to have the top rubby dubby, and you need to have the top equipment. So anybody that has a sporting interest, if they're in a position where they can afford to have the best things to try and execute that discipline, it's going to give you a good head start. But as far as I'm concerned, it comes down to having the right skipper with the right boat and in the um, the right geography of the country. I think it's fair to say that Milford Haven is probably, if not, the best sharking in the whole of Europe now. That's most apparent. I believe, as we speak, Andrew is on course. I think he's got 881 sharks across his decks this year. He's aiming for a 1,000 before the season closes. I'm going up in a few weeks, hopefully, to contribute again towards that. This year he's documented... 88 blue sharks hooked and landed and released back in in one day. That again is angling history. That day his nearest competitor caught 11. Again, there is no coincidence that he is getting results. He is the top skipper and he's using the right bait and the right rabbi dubby. I mean, he does actually have a secret recipe that I don't even know about of his um, oils that he mixes with the chum and the rabbi dubby. And I think that does play a significant part as well. I take on board what you're saying, but in addition to that, Milford Haven, the venue, must also play a significant role in all of this. Traditionally, it was always West Country waters further to the south. Maybe climate change is playing some sort of a role here. So what is it then, in your opinion, that makes this area so special? Going back to an initial point we touched on, I think the sea there holds significant bait fish. I think I'm led to believe it's not heavily trawled where you're wiping out those bait fish. So where you've got, where the sea can hold bait, you will get predators. And I think why there is, I don't know the actual uh, sort of underwater geography there, but I believe there are features there which retain good stocks of bait fish. You've got very good water quality there. I think you've got a good chunk of the Gulf Stream breaking off and going there and possibly being a better chunk of the Gulf Stream than Cornwall enjoy. 
I don't know whether this year we had a particularly warm spell late June, July. I mean, obviously I had that Mako in, in July. We did have a very, very hot spell. Whether that contributed towards this Mako, I'm not sure. Global warming may per- play a part. I mean, this year there have been swordfish caught commercially up north. There have been tuna caught recently in both Scotland and Ireland. I think this year is a significant shift in what we would perhaps describe as more tropical species being within reach. I mean, again, one of the fishing journalists said, almost now we have got proper game fishing available on our doorstep in the UK, and long may that continue. And I think fished responsibly, it could even get better. I mean, there are certain things we are planning to do next season further afield and hopefully we will encounter some of those additional species. As we've already said, you're the first angler and Andrew Allsop is the first skipper to be responsible for that particular shark fishing Grand Slam. But it doesn't end there because there is one other species, the thresher, that could take your achievement to another level and incidentally give you yet another shark angling first. Um, The thought of a thresher is a really obvious one for me. As we stand at the moment, there are only two other UK anglers alive that have caught Mako, me being the third. Neither of them have caught Thresher. If I was able to successfully catch a Thresher in the UK, I will actually be the only angler who has ever had the four main shark species in the UK. So that's definitely something I wish to do. A lot of people have said to me about going to areas of of Isle of Wight, um, which are noted as areas that would tend to hold threshers more. My own goal is actually to catch a thresher out of Milford Haven. The reason I say that is they have been sighted. One was actually sighted this year, and it's actually been photographed, and anybody that's um, able to go onto the internet will be able to see that. It was estimated at a £1,000. It was a 16-foot-long fish, and it was amongst a pod of dolphins. If Andrew and I, I mean, we're going to be working as a team on this. If Andrew and I are successful in getting a thresher from Milford Haven, it will actually record a significant event for him. He will be the only skipper to catch poor beagle, blue, mako and thresher from one port. That has never been done in the UK. If I'm able to get the thresher out of Milford Haven, it ticks his box and it ticks my box as having those four species. So... We're going to be working and putting in significant time to that in the future. I really do want to focus on that. I think it's probably going to be one of those ones where I put a lot of time in and blank a lot. But for me now, having those three other big species behind me, I I need to move on. I don't want to dwell in the past, although I'm proud of what I've done. A thresher is definitely the way forward for me and that I will be exploring every avenue with Andrew on that. I mean, we will be using certainly different techniques than we have to date and hopefully be successful in it. I don't see there's any reason why not. And I think our targeting for that will be June and July of next year. So um, not that I'm wishing to fast forward time, but I'm I'm looking forward to the new shark season opening for that um, objective. And if or when you get the thresher, what then? I'm going to go for the thresher. That's definitely something for me personally. That's something for Andrew personally. If we're successful with thresher, I think the the next target would be something that has been sighted this year. Andrew was out several weeks back and he literally said for half an hour you could look all around his boat 
from boat to horizon, and bluefin tuna were jumping anything from sort of £100 up to £600. And he said it was a spectacular sight. He almost described it as something as the, the, the Blue Planet programme. It's obvious that they go through that. I think it's obvious that they've gone through there for many years. And I think actually, having caught the Mako this year, they do eat tuna. I think it's all linked up. If those fish are going to remain passing through there, it would be something that would be great fun to fish for. I think albacore, again, so far as a member of the tuna family, they would be an easier target. I think we would have a go for those. And again, we need to look into how we're going to achieve that. I think a lot of boats will be doing the same thing next season. There have been big tuna already caught recent weeks in Ireland and also Scotland. I think the biggest one was £628 bluefin. So again, I think that was suggested that was they'd fished for seven years and sort of then got lucky. So it is a case of right place, right time. By the nature of what they are, they move at significant speed and you literally have to have a little bit of luck on that day that you are there on the right day with the right equipment. I'm also led to believe they fight so strongly that if you were the lucky angler to sort of hook up, you won't be necessarily the same angler that lands it because it literally would have to be rotated. They are an awesome creature and um, it can take several hours to um, subdue. So, yeah, that's an opportunity that we may consider as well. So there's um, there's something else to go for. I read in the press that the Scottish bluefins you mentioned there could actually fall foul of the law on the basis that it's illegal to catch them at the moment. But I'm sure that only applies to commercial catches. Providing you don't kill a tuna for sale, I don't think there's a problem. And I believe that you almost had to address that particular situation head on last week, when it seems you have one on the hook for several seconds. Yeah, we were trolling baits in the same way we did that Mako day. We were using fresh baits and we were fishing four rods. We'd successfully landed a blue shark, boated and released. Within 20 minutes of that, we were hit with another shark. Um, that came off fairly swiftly. And when we examined the bait, we knew that was a poor beagle because of the pin marks in the bait. The teeth are different to a blue. And then... After that, we had what can only be described as a real hit. The far left rod bent over. Um, the reel was just screaming line out. We lost 200 yards of line very, very quickly. Bearing in mind Andrew's accomplishments as far as handling big fish on all different sorts of equipment, light rods and heavy rods, he was physically unable to lift the rod out of the rod holder he burnt his hand badly as the line went out. I went over to assist and it literally took two of us to lift the rod out. I burnt my hand as the line continued to go out. And soon after, whatever it was came off. There is a possibility that was a tuna. We will never know. It was exciting. We were actually that day fishing our Mako mark. Um, fortunate that Andrew will only fish that mark with me. And so, again, I think it shows that that mark is quite special. It could hold another monster down there. But whether it was a tuna, we will never know. Personally, I think it probably was. But um, we will have to wait and see and um, go out there and actually prove it in the same way as Andrew has for many years. Don't talk about it. We actually put the fish on the deck. So um, we'll save that for perhaps next year. Going off Andrew's track record, if there are tuna there then for me, it's only a matter of time before Wales records its first ever bluefin on Robin Line. Whether you could stretch your current look after the Mako to catching it, 
or a thresher, or better still, even both, I don't think too many people would bet against it. With the Mako, which has to be the rarest of the five already in the bag, you're obviously well on your way. My thanks then to Andy Griffith for taking the time to link up with us here.